So have you seen Eden recently? She's smiling all the time. Have you seen her? Yeah. She came tonight. Hey, uh, one of the funniest things about playing with Eden now is she loves hide and seek. Have you seen her play hide and seek before? So next time you see her, here's what you got to do. You got to hide somewhere and then pop out and go, Whoo! and she's just like, ha, 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 like she laughs. Uh, that's my best imitation of her laugh. That's weird. Ha, 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 ha. She laughs. It's, it's funny. And uh, it's funny because you can keep doing it over and over again, and it doesn't seem to get old. It's like the funniest trick for her. It's just like she never gets over it. But um, I don't know if you remember a time when you were a little kid, but a lot of kids remember this, when they thought that if they couldn't see somebody, that whoever they were looking at, that they could not see if their eyes were closed, that they could not be seen by the other person, okay? That seems to happen for kids when they're like, I don't know two or three years old, they start to realize like, oh, wait a minute. If I close my eyes, the person I'm looking at and who's right there, they can still see me even though I can't see them. So after like a year or two, that wears off. And I don't think hide and seek will be as fun anymore uh, once Eden's, you know, intelligent enough to realize that we can still see her um, even when her eyes are closed or she can still see us if our eyes are closed. But the point is that the older you get, the more self-aware you become, right? You start to figure out, oh yeah, I mean, people are watching me. I I can kind of see that um, even when I can't see someone watching me, I know that maybe they are watching my actions and activities. And that's kind of part of growing up. And it's really the same thing when we think about our relationship with God. The more we understand who God is, the more we start to realize, actually, There's nothing that we do that God doesn't see. Just because we can't see God doesn't mean that he can't see us. And the reality is, no matter where we are, whether we're just living our life out in the open, whether we're in the light, whether we're in the dark, whether we're at church, whether we're at school, whether we're at home, in the kitchen, whether we're at the the family room, on the sofa, wherever we are, the Bible says that God is there too, and God sees all and knows all. Not just the stuff that happens in the, the outside world, so to speak, but also Bible says that he knows what's going on in our hearts. So there's nothing that we do or say or or anything like that, that God doesn't know about and that God doesn't see. Now, for some of you, that might sound scary because you're thinking, wait, everything that I've done, you mean all the bad stuff, all the secrets, all the stuff that people don't know about, all that stuff? Bible says, yeah, God's seen that too. For others of you, that might sound like a comfort because you think, wow, that's really good news that no matter if I feel alone or if people don't seem to like me, that God's still with me and God still knows me and he sees everything and he knows my heart. Well, that's true too. So depending on your relation with God, that one truth that God knows everything, sees everything and is perfectly in tune with everything that's going on in this world, that can either be a comfort or that can be scary depending on your relationship with God. Tonight, we're gonna look at a text, a psalm, a song from David where he presents it almost as if it's a bad thing. He says, he asks the question, where could I run away from you? If I wanted to run away from God, is there anywhere I could go to hide from God? And his answer is no. And at the end of the Psalm, he says, that's a really good thing for me because I have a good relationship with God. But it is interesting to know that depending on your relationship with God, that is the scariest thing in the world for some of us, that God knows everything, has seen everything, and is in tune with everything that happens in the world. But for others of us, maybe that is the most comforting thing in the world. But either way, it's true. So I'd love for you to grab a Bible and look at Psalm 139. Last week, we looked at Psalm 133. Nathan preached from that Psalm, telling us that it's good to be united with one another. Now, this Psalm by David is saying, everything that there is to know, God knows. You might've noticed that worksheet. You got a lot of lines there. We're not going to work through the text like we normally do. Sometimes when we preach a sermon, we go through the whole text and then go back up and then do the points. What we're going to do today is only take it chunk by chunk, but we're going to work our way all the way through these 24 verses. That's why you got so many lines there, because there's so much that we can learn about God through this psalm. I don't know if you remember, but when we went through that chart that we had at Psalm 1 way back in January, there was a lot of different types of songs. And one of the types of songs that was popular was the praise song, the worship song, right? The prayer from David to God or, or Asaph to God. Well, this is one of those psalms, but also there's another element to this, that this is the only type of psalm that we're looking at that is like this, the imprecatory psalm. I don't know if you remember that word, but imprecatory is that word which means the psalms where someone prays to God that God would take care of the bad guys. That's a legitimate form of worship to go to God and to ask for him to take care of the people that are doing horrible things, to say, God, please judge those people. God, please take care of them. And in some situations, God, please do it quickly. 
I don't want that person to keep doing their evil stuff. So God, take care of it. That's what this psalm is too. And all of it comes under the idea that God knows all and sees all. Look at verse 1. Psalm 139, verse 1. It says it's from David, Psalm of David. Look what it says. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. So God has looked over David's life, so to speak. And sometimes when we search things, we can't find things. What this says is God has searched me, everything there is to know about me, and he's found every piece of information. He knows all of it. There's nothing that he missed. There's no oversight with God. He sees everything. He didn't miss anything. Verse number two says, God, you know when I sit down and when I rise up, and then you discern my thoughts from afar. Like God doesn't have to be in the same room to know when you stand up and sit down. And to some of you, that's not that impressive because we have smartphones and we have Alexas and things like that where it's like, oh, that makes sense. We got computers. We can obviously know stuff that happens in different rooms without being there. But this part hasn't been able to been figured out by anybody, that, that you can discern someone's thoughts from afar, that God can look at your heart and know everything that you're going to think years before you think it with perfect accuracy. That's what he says that God has done for me. He searched me and known me. He discerned my thoughts from afar. Verse number three says, you search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all of my ways. There's nothing that I do. There's no feeling that I have. There's no thought that I have that God does not know completely. Keep reading. He says, even before a word is on my tongue, when I, I feel like saying something, even before I say it, everything that I've ever said, God knows completely. He says, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You don't just know a little bit of it. God doesn't just know kind of the gist of what you feel. He knows with complete accuracy everything you've ever felt and every word that you've ever said, even the words that you haven't said yet. Think about that. All the stuff you're going to say tonight, God knows completely well. He could, he could put it out in a manuscript. He could write it out, and you would say exactly what God knows you're going to say. Like, that's crazy. If you really start to digest how amazing that truth is, God knows everything you're going to say. Then he says in verse number five, this knowledge that God has, it's like he hems him in. That, that's the idea of like sewing something into a shirt. Right? You know, when you put a patch on a shirt, like you're hemming it in. Right? Or if you got something, you know, like a pocket of some kind and there's something in there and you sew it in, imagine sewing all the way around it so that thing that's in a pocket or something stays in there. It's hemmed in. David says, that's like me. God's knowledge is so perfect that there's nothing I could do. There's no feeling I could have that God doesn't already know. Another way of saying that is I'm stuck. Whatever I do, I'm stuck. God knows right? So if I go somewhere far away, God knows. God's there. So I'm stuck. And now if you say I'm stuck somewhere, if a kid screams, oh, my head is stuck in the drawer, then it's like, that's a bad thing, right? Um, which is why I guess being stuck is a good thing or a bad thing, depending on where you're stuck, <laughs> right? So here he says, I'm hemmed in with God. I mean, it's a good place to be. I'm, I'm there with him. He goes on. He says, you lay your hand upon me. Like, you're close to me, God. Verse number six says, such knowledge that God has is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attend it. I cannot attain it, which means I can't grasp it. Like, I can't even know all the things that God knows about me, let alone all the things that God knows about everything. Okay. This is a huge psalm. It, it means a lot if we start to digest what it really means, because we sometimes live our lives thinking about God, talking about God sometimes, but we put it to like this corner of our life where we think about God when it's time to think about God. We talk to God only when someone says, let's pray and bow your heads. We think about God when we open the Bible, but that's it. Because when we close it, we don't think about him anymore. Some of us live our lives only talking about God when we go to a place like church or your parents might talk to you about God, but none of, no other times. In other words, for some of us, Knowing God is not a very real thing for some of us. This psalm kind of blows that out of the water and says we shouldn't think like that. What we need to think like is we need to think about God all the time. We need to have a better sense of who God is because if God really knows everything and is everywhere, then that's a big deal. You got a bunch of subpoints there under point number one. I want you to write down point number one. The big thing we need to do is we need to spend time thinking about God. That's the first thing. And then secondly, that first bullet point from verses one to six is 
one thing that you need to know about God is that God knows all there is to know. So that's two things for you to write down. Spend time thinking about God. That's what I want us to do with these, these points. The first half of this psalm is all about big thoughts about God. So we need to spend time thinking about God. But then secondly, I want you to know that God knows everything. That's the bottom line for verses one to six. We studied the book of Deuteronomy in the summertime. We looked at like 10 or 11 sermons. We studied the book of Isaiah for 12 sermons, I believe, in the fall. And then we've been doing like, seven, this is number 16 of the Psalms that we've looked at. Um, when we studied the book of Isaiah, there was one chapter where we spent the whole time just talking about the attributes of God. You might remember Isaiah chapter 40 was that chapter. I want to quote for you some of what we said back then, some of the text. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 13 says, who has measured the spirit of the Lord or what man has showed him his counsel? Like who's given God advice about things? Verse 14 says, whom did God consult and who made God understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Question mark, right? Like who has told God something that God doesn't already know? The answer is, it's impossible. Think about this. There's nothing that anyone could tell God or instruct God in that God does not already know. So like if knowledge is like a bucket, right? If all knowledge fits in a bucket, God has all of it. You and I have little tiny bits of it, and then we forget. So then we lose that little bit, right? God has all knowledge, contains all of it in his bucket, so to speak. Like it's, it's contained in him all the time, and there's nothing that can be known that can get added to that bucket. Like it's all there. All of the knowledge in the entire world is there, and God has it. So who can instruct God? The answer is nobody. Later on in that passage, Isaiah 40, 28 says, have you not known? Like that now it's asking us the question, have we not understood something? Have you not heard? Have you not known that the Lord is the everlasting God? So he's existed forever. He's been God forever. And he's the creator of the ends of the earth. And he does not faint or grow weary, right? We get tired. We can only play ping pong for so long until we get bored, right? We can only eat so many chicken tacos and then, you know, bad things start happening in our bodies, right? We can only have so much water. I know you guys grabbed like six water bottles tonight, but you, you can only have so much. Right? You can have a lot, but you can't have an infinite amount, right? But God doesn't get faint. He doesn't get weary. And it says his understanding is unsearchable. Like if you were to really understand all the things that God knows, you could not do it. I could not do it. All of us together could not do it. Problem is for some of us, we don't believe this. We might think it and we might tell other people, yeah, God knows everything. Sometimes we act like God doesn't know as much as us. And here's what I mean by that. Sometimes we act like we know more than God, or at least we treat God like we're smarter than him. There's a time in the Bible where a man did this. Job did this. Um, even though he was pretty righteous, there were times where he questioned God a little bit too much. And at the end of the book of Job, Job 38, verse 4, God has to tell Job, you don't know everything. You know little tiny chunks of information, and then you forget them, right? I know everything. Job 38, 4 says, this is God speaking to Job. He says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. How did I make the world? Job, you've got no idea. You don't even know everything there is in the world, let alone how I made it. You just don't know. And God is kind of aggressive there towards Job, like, wow, like he's pretty intense. Why? Because Job was acting like he knew more than God. We should be careful that we don't act like we know more than God because God knows everything there is to know. I said this is good and bad news, depending on your relationship with God. A um, couple of bad news passages for us, um, where God says, I know everything, and it's bad news for you that I know everything. Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 9 and 10. It's a famous verse, especially verse 9. It says, the heart, the human heart is deceitful. It's wicked. It's sinful. God says, I know that it's bad and sinful. Then he talks to you, and he talks to me, and he says, John, I know that your heart is bad. He looks at you and says, I know that your heart is sinful. It's deceitful above all things. And then God asks the question, who can understand it? Because the answer is, you cannot understand your heart perfectly. I can't understand my heart perfectly. I can't know what all my motives are all the time of why I do everything. I just, I can't. You can't know yours either, completely and perfectly. But verse 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and I test the mind and I give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. So 
God, being the perfect judge, is a perfect judge because he doesn't have to have witnesses come to the court. He is the witness. He's the judge and the witness, and he's also the jury and the executioner. There's a time in the New Testament where Jesus said this as well. The last book of the Bible, Jesus looked at a church. This is Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. And Jesus said this, I know your works. I've seen them. If you think I haven't seen them, I have seen them. Jesus says, I know. And Jesus could say that to every last one of us. He could look at you square in the face and he could say, I know your works. I know them. And to this group of people, he says, they're neither hot nor cold. Would that you'd either be hot or cold. I wish that you would kind of make up your mind here, but because you're lukewarm, because you're not really serving me, he says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I'm going to vomit you. Jesus says that to a group of people who walked into church every Sunday, who prayed along with the church. He said, they're lukewarm. There are other churches where he says, I know your works, your patient endurance. You've been suffering for me faithfully. I know your works. And to some, it's a good thing. And to others, it's a scary thing. That's what God's knowledge does. And that should be the tension of how we feel about it. Like, whoa, God does know everything. That's awesome, but it's kind of scary at the same time. We should stand in awe of God. Look back at Psalm 139. Look at verse 7. This is that question. Right, our question for tonight, where, where can I run away from you? comes from this verse right here, verse 7. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? Flee means to run away. If I wanted to run away as far as I could from God, where could I go? Right? Sounds like a guy in the Bible who tried to do that. Remember the guy who tried to do that? Tried to run as far away from God's assignment? Remember Jonah? Right, what did he do? He was told to go this way. He went that way. He was told to go to the east to preach at Nineveh, and he went as far west as he could. He tried to run away. And guess what the lesson for Jonah was? Where can I run away from God? Can I go in the water? Can I run away from God there? No, can't run away from God there. Can I run away if I go on a ship? Like that's a pretty safe place to be thinking about. There's nobody who could come attack you. They'd have to, you know, find you in the middle of nowhere. But God's there. So there's nowhere you could run away from God. He says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there, right? If I went to the highest heaven, if I went to space, God would be there. Right? And it says, if I went to Sheol, you're there. He's like saying, if I went to heaven, you'd be there, God. You know, if I went to hell, you'd be there too, right? So even in hell, right? Guess what? God's there. I mean, the reason there's punishment is because God is inflicting that punishment. You can't run away from him. That's an up and down, so to speak. Then he says, look at verse nine. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Now, that's kind of a weird phrase, but... The wings of the morning. Where does the sun come up in the morning? I mean, where's the sun come up in the morning? In the east, okay, right? In the east. You know, the Israelites lived on the west coast that look a lot like Southern California. So when the sun came up, where did it come up from? Well, for us, it comes up over there, over the mountains, right? Over Saddleback Mountain. If you ever watch a sunrise, right? Most of you don't watch sunrises. You watch sunsets because they go where? out to the water, okay? Israelites had the same experience. They lived on the West Coast. So when you say, if I took the wings of the morning, if I went where the sun came up and went as far over there as I could to the east, you'd be there, God. And if I took that, those wings of the morning, and I flew as far into the sea as possible, east or west is what he's saying, you'd be there too. So if I go up or if I go down, guess what? God's going to be there. If I go east or if I go west, guess what? God's going to be there. He says, even there, Verse number 10, your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. See, this is where for David, it's not a scary thing that God knows everything. It's a comforting thing. It's like wherever I go, whether I'm with a bunch of enemies, whether I'm with a bunch, with a bunch of friends, you're there too. Look at verse number 11. He says, if I should say in my heart, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Like I, if I've got no lights, if I'm in the pitch black darkness. If I'm in a cave and I cannot even see my hand in front of my face, guess what? Verse number 12, even the darkness is not dark to you. You've got perfect night vision, God. Like if I was in a scary place and in the darkness, God would see it. Oh, or if I was trying to hide from God in the darkness, guess what? He sees that too. The darkness is not dark to you. It's light to you. It's like 
in the darkest place in the world, the most lonesome place in the world, is like it had the, the sun at, at full blast shining on it to God. That's how much he can perceive what's going on there. This is good news and bad news, as we've talked about so far. Second thing I want you to write down, second sub-point here is God is everywhere with you. Good news and bad news, right? That God is everywhere with you. Whether you go up, whether you go down, east or west, whether you're in the light or in the darkness, God is there. Here's what the rest of the Bible says about this. Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 24. Jeremiah 23, 24. It's an easy one to remember. 23, 24. Ask the question, can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him? This is God speaking, just like he spoke in Jeremiah 17. Can a man hide in a secret place where I cannot see him, declares the Lord? He says, do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? Not like there's a little part of me everywhere. That's not what God says. It's like, if God were to take on any spatial things, it's like he's so big that like a balloon, he would just fill everything. Like when, you know, air fills a balloon and it just can fill an entire thing. Like that's what God's saying. If the world is a big thing of air, right? I'm a balloon that would fill the whole thing, right? I fill everywhere. So darkness, light, can God see? Yeah, God can see. Proverbs 15.3 puts it like this. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Proverbs 15.3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place. God sees all. The New Testament puts it like this. Hebrews 4.13 comes after that famous edge verse. Remember that? The word of God is living and active. But what does verse 13 say? It says, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So, some of us are trying to run away from God. The question that we asked earlier, where could I go from God? Some of us are trying to run away from God. For you, what you need to know tonight is you can't. You can't, and you haven't. You might have tricked yourself into thinking that you're not caught, but God says you are caught, so don't run. And some of you are in the opposite camp where you're scared sometimes. You feel like you're lonely sometimes. You feel like you don't have people who love you and care about you sometimes, you feel that way at, at times. Well, here's the thing. God is there with you too. It's a comfort to God's people. Look at verse 13, back in our passage. Psalm 139, verse 13. He says, for you knitted my, or you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Who put your liver together, right? When did you build your liver, right? How many stitches did you use to, you know, figure out your small intestine, right? How did you make it? It's just so cool that you have a small intestine. How did you make your small intestine, right? Or your esophagus or your taste buds. There's so many like little taste buds that you have. That's amazing. When did you figure that out and how did you, how did you make that? For, oh yeah, you didn't, right? That, that's the point. It's like God put you together, every part of you. The amazing part, the parts that you like, the parts you don't like, like God put that together for you. He knitted me together in my mother's womb. Uh, if you just think about how crazy that is, it's the weirdest thing ever. And by the way, doctors have no idea how it works. They have no clue. There are no answers to how it works. That just like two cells can just come together and just become a person. Like we've got some answers with DNA, but like there's just no explanation. It just happens. How does it just happen? It doesn't just happen. God does it. Like that's what this text is saying. Sometimes we think so scientifically, we think, oh, well, why, did, why would, you know, my, my iPad fall if I dropped it, right? Oh, that's gravity. Well, the thing is, the Bible teaches that everything that happens in this world is God's doing. Like the things that we call natural are just the things that God has put in place and the things that he does. Colossians 1.17 says that Jesus upholds the whole universe. In him, all things hold together. Hebrews 1.3 says that in him, all things are upheld by the word of his power, like the reason your heart beats every time it beats is because God wants it to, not because it naturally does that, right? We, we speak in terms like it naturally does that, but God upholds everything. So if someone has life, guess what? God gave them that life. God upholds their life. If you keep breathing, when you breathe in and breathe out, and now you're thinking about your breathing right now. You're thinking about it, aren't you? Because you're thinking about breathing in and breathing out. It's gonna be hard for you to stop thinking about your breathing if you keep thinking about your breathing that, you got to breathe in and now you see, now you're stuck, right? Um, how, how did you do that for like hours and hours and hours before you didn't even think about it? 
Like, it's so incredible how God keeps you alive, right? You can, you can forget about breathing now if you want to, but now you're probably going to be distracted because it's hard to forget about breathing. Um, but here's my point. Everything that happens, God is, is in and he's doing. He created us. He upholds us. Verse 14 says, I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Then he says, wonderful are your works. My soul knows them very well. Whether that's the creative works that God does in making us. Maybe David's trying to say, your works are amazing. Like I've studied the human body. It's incredible how amazing we're put together. Or if he's just saying all the stuff that God does is amazing. Wonderful are your works. It's amazing. My soul knows it well. Verse 15 says, my frame, my body was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. I think that's a reference back to the first man and woman. Remember, what did God make them out of, right? The dirt. So it's a poetic way of saying, remember when we were made, so to speak, in the dirt, right? God made us from the dirt. But where does he make us now? Verse 13 says, in our mother's womb, knit together in our mother's womb. Next thing I want you to know about God is that God carefully created you. I want you to write that down. God carefully created you. This is an amazing truth, that God carefully created you. And every baby right now that is in their mom's stomach right now in their womb is being put together by God. It's amazing. That's how you were put together. Like your parents, like, I know it's weird, but your parents didn't put you together, right? It didn't happen. God did. This is amazing. It's amazing. That's why, by the way, this is an important text when you start to understand, does God care about people who are not born yet? Answer says, yes. Bible says that God does care about people who are not born yet as much as he cares about you after you're born because God puts these babies together in their mother's wombs, right? You might've heard about abortion before, right? That's the, when people take the life of their kid, they go in and they have um, their kid taken apart limb from limb, torn apart in their mother's womb, right? Abortion. It happens almost a million times every year in our country right now. In the USA, it happens about a million times. Every year, there's a million babies that are not born that would be born if their parents didn't kill them first, okay? Um, That's something that goes on in the world. You might hear about abortion and things like that. One thing I do want you to know about that is the reason that's wrong is because you don't become a person when you're born, right? You don't become a person when you're born, you become a person when God knits you together in your mother's womb. When does that start? It starts the first day you're fertilized as an egg, right? An egg is sperm. You're fertilized, and now you're, you're a person, right? So the Bible teaches over and over again. Jeremiah 1, verse 5, God speaks about Jeremiah as a baby before he was born. It says, as you were being formed in your mother's womb, before you were born, I knew you, I called you, I put you together, and I called you. And in that situation, it was to be a preacher because Jeremiah's job was to be a preacher, Same thing happens with John the Baptist in the New Testament. God speaks about him as if he's a real person because he is a real person. It says, John jumped in his mother's womb, right? John jumped. That's a sentence that's been said a lot, said a lot about me, right? John jumped, right? Uh, John the Baptist jumped in his mother's womb, right? Why? Because John's a real person even before he's born, That's something important to remember when you just think about God's creation. Genesis 1.27 says that God has made us all in his image. Whether you're a man, whether you're a woman, he's made you in his image. And by the way, he has made you one or the other. He has truly made you to be a male if you're a male, and he's made you to be a female if you're a female. And that was a choice that God made. Think about it. In the same way that your hair color, in the same way that, that your family was God's choice for you, a very significant choice that God made for you was he made you to be a girl or he made you to be a boy. If he made you to be a boy, he expects you to be a boy while you're a boy. Then he expects you to be a man when you grow up and be a man. And there's something that God has called you to there. And if you're a girl, he made you to be a girl, and he wants you to grow up and be a girl and be a female girl, adult girl, which is a woman. Sorry. I was lost for the word. A woman. Uh, he's called you to that. Right? You don't get to draw a circle around whatever you are and say, I get to be whatever I want to be. You don't get to be whatever you want to be. You get to be what God has called you to be and made you to be. And if you're a girl, he's made you to be a woman. And if you're a boy, he's made you to be a man. And part of growing up is becoming a man or becoming a woman. Anyway, what's the comfort in this? Well, Luke 12, 7, Jesus says that God knows every hair on your head. They're all numbered. And in that context, Jesus says, even the hairs of your head are numbered, all of them. So fear not. Don't be afraid. Some of us are so afraid. We feel like our world's spiraling on around us. So we can't control anything. Well, that's okay because God does. Speaking of God controlling everything, look at verse 16. 
Verse 16, David says, your eyes saw my unformed substance. Like when I'm a little baby embryo, eight weeks, nine weeks, 10 weeks, God has seen you when you were like that. Verse 16 says, in your book, God's book, were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. So that means that your days, however long you're going to live, are completely allotted. You cannot change God's plan. Some of you will live to be 13. Some of you will live to be 14. Some of you will live to be 40. Others of you will live to be 65. Some of you might be living to be 85 or 95. But whatever it is, God has already decided and you cannot change it. It is what it is. And God has determined it. God has decided it. You shouldn't try to change it. They're all determined. Just a big concept here. That God doesn't just know. He doesn't just make. He's not just everywhere, but he also controls. He's sovereign. Fourth thing I want you to write down. God is in control of your whole life. God is in control of your whole life. The New Testament says that for Christians, God has made us to be his special workmanship. And it even says there, this is Ephesians 2.10, that God has also prepared beforehand all the good works that you're ever going to do. He's prepared them and he wants you to walk in them. It's like he, I don't know, set out a bunch of sack lunches, so to speak, right? He gave you the bag, he gave you the, the, the bread, he gave you the peanut butter and the, the jelly. I said peanut butter weird there. Um, peanut butter and jelly, he gave all that, and the apple and the knife to, to put the like slices of peanut butter and then not slices of apple with the peanut butter, sorry. My wife has been making me a lot of, um, put peanut butter on everything, right? On apples and on bananas and on toast and whatever, anyway. It's like God has set all those things out in a line, and now you're going to go do them. He's prepared all these good works for you. So does anything happen? Do you, do you, are you confronted with any situation that God did not prepare for you to go to that situation? No. All, like all of it, God has set up for you to go to. So can you go anywhere, experience anything, whether it be good or bad, that God did not already ordain to happen? No. You can't. You're stuck. It's huh, another way of putting it. Or a positive way, you hem me in, behind and before. Our lives are completely under God's sovereign control. Isaiah 46, another passage we looked at a long time ago. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10 says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all all my purpose. There's nothing that I want to be accomplished in this world that I will not accomplish. That's what God says. That's amazing. Now, that's a lot of information. Those 16 verses, that's a lot, right? What about these next verses? Well, I don't want you to just take that information about God, because that's a lot of good information about God. That can be comforting, right? That can be challenging. I don't want you to just take that information and just put it on a shelf. There's a lot of people who collect Legos, who don't really want to make the Legos. They just want to take the Legos and put it on a shelf, right? Um, the older you get, you stop collecting Legos and toys. You start collecting things like, I don't know, memorabilia, or you start collecting uh, baseballs that, you know, the, not the baseballs that you throw around, but the baseballs that you get at the, uh, at the stadium that you kind of put in a nice plaque. You don't put it on a nice plaque. You put it in a nice little, uh, you know, case. That's it, right? Um, put in one of those get older, you get a little bit more money, you start collecting things like cars, right? Some people collect cars. Cars, they don't drive every day, but just ones that they, you know, they just drive on one day of the week, or um, if you get really rich, you can have cars. I saw this thing where um, this, this rich guy had cars on this like little thing, little plate that like sp- spun around in the garage, right? <laughs> That's when you really reached like, I have a lot of money, when you have cars that are spinning in your garage, right? Like a showroom, People collect watches. People collect a lot of things. Some of them, they, they collect to use. Other people just collect them just to put on the shelf, right? The really valuable things that a lot of people collect and they put in safety deposit boxes and things like that, okay? When you collect this information about God, I don't want you just to collect it and put it in the safety deposit box, okay? The stuff that we collect about God, the information, the theology about God, we're supposed to put into practice. We're supposed to use we don't collect it like cars to put in a garage and never drive. We're supposed to drive the, these pieces of information. We're supposed to let these things go around in our minds. We're supposed to apply these things to our lives. So point number two, I want you to write this down. Be changed by your knowledge 
of God. Be changed. Be a different person because of what you know about God. I think that's what David is saying here. We get three responses that David says. You got three little subpoints there. Three things that David does because of what he knows about God. First of all, look at verse 17. David says, How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, and how vast is the sum of them. All the things that there is to know, whether about me or the person sitting next to me. I mean, think about, like, if you were to describe everything there was to know about you, how, how, how long would that take to think through? Everything about you, everything that you've done, everything that you said, every feeling that you've had, every experience, everything that, all the way down to the cellular level of what's going on in your body, everything, every place you've been, every meal that you've eaten, all the calories that you ate at all the meals, exactly what your body did. Like, you can't, I don't even know. It's just too much, even about you. Now take that, multiply it on everybody, on everybody, on everybody. Not just right now, but all throughout history, right? And that God doesn't just know it and then put it to the side in his mind and forget about it, but everything that God knows, he knows all at once. I've said this to you before, but if you ever drive in the car and look around on the road, if you're in traffic especially, it's really scary, and you look at all the cars, and you think, in all these cars, there's people. And all these people have a life story. They have things they're concerned about. They have things they're listening to. They have things that they've done today, this morning. They've got plans. They've, everyone's got all this stuff. And if you took all of it and wrapped it in a big ball of knowledge, it would overwhelm you because there's just so many of them. Right? God knows everything all the time. How vast is the sum of them? Verse 18 says, if I could count them, they are more than the sand. Then he says, I awake and I'm still with you. That's a confusing one. Some people think that means even when I die, I'm still going to be with God, right? Even when I awake, when I enter his presence. Other people think that means that he fell asleep when writing the song. Maybe he wrote this part in the morning, right? I awake and guess what? God's still there. I can fall asleep and lose consciousness. And then when I get my consciousness back, guess what? God's still there. It's like, it's weird, but with Eden when she wakes up, like sometimes we're there when she wakes up and it's super cute. Most of the time she wakes up and starts screaming and then we go to her room. But today it was like she was kind of just getting up, right? And we were there and it was cool because then she like smiled. It's like, oh, you're there, right? Um, I think that's kind of the picture of what he's saying here. Like even if I was to fall asleep and wake up, guess what? God's still there. His vast sum of knowledge and care is, is ever present. I think what he's doing here is he's worshiping God. First thing I want you to write down, how can you be changed by your knowledge of God? I want you to worship him. That's from verses 17 and 18. Worship him. Worship God. What does that mean? It means to think big thoughts about God and to direct your thanksgiving and praise to him in your heart. It means to pray good things about God to God. To tell God how great he is. That's what it means to worship him. Obviously, in the Psalms, there's like tons of verses I could have you write down. I picked two. Psalm 105, verses 1 to 3, says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Tell of all his wondrous works. Like, tell people. Glory in his name. Let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Worship him. That's basically the idea. Also, Psalm 40, verse 5. Psalm 40, verse 5 says, You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds, and your thoughts towards us. Like, it always feels good for someone to think about us, right? But how many times has God thought about us? What things has God thought about us? It's a whole bunch of things he's thought about us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and I will tell of them. Yet, they're more than could be told. I'll tell people about all the good things God has done, but guess what? If I spent my whole life telling people all the things that God has done... He would continue to outpace me in the good things he does to where me just telling people would be a slower process than the good things that he does. I couldn't even tell of all the good things that God has done at this point. It's amazing. Worship him. Look at verse 19, back in our passage. This is the imprecatory part. Verse 19 says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, oh God. It's like, whoa, where'd that come from? I thought we were talking about how good God is and how he knows everything. He knows all the good and the bad. Well, that truth is related here. Because guess what David says? God, because you see everything, and because you know everything, God, there's something you need to take care of. Slay the wicked. Kill them. That's what he's saying. Whoa. 
Kill the people who are against you. Oh, men of blood, depart from me. He says, I, I don't want to be, even be near you guys. It's like the, you know, the concept when people say things and they're like, oh, let lightning strike me if this. And then you're like, oh, I want to get out of the way from you, man, because uh, that's pretty bad. It's kind of an old person joke. Um, but yeah, anyway, it's like, I don't want to be even next to somebody. If they're going to get in trouble, right, I don't even want to be around them. Here's what happens. At school, you know someone did something wrong and the teacher's going to get mad at not just them, but all the guys that are around them and all the girls that are around them. What do you do? You're like, oh, let me, I'm going to just take a break from being your friend for just a little bit. Um, the teacher's going to yell at you. I might come back later. Like, you don't want to be near them when they're going to be in trouble. That's what David's saying. Depart from me. I don't want to be near them. Verse number 20. They speak against you, God, with malicious intent. Your enemies, God, they take your name in vain. They talk about you like you're not there. Verse number 21. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Now, now, now we're getting into territory you might be uncomfortable actually saying. He says, God, you know that I hate the people that hate you. That's what he said. Scripture. That's a hard one, right? Goes further. Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? There's something in me that, that just gets me fired up when people are against God. That's what he's saying. He's fierce about this. Verse number 22, I hate them with complete hatred. Not like a part of me, not like a little bit. No, I'm consumed with feelings towards how bad what they're doing is. Then he says, I count them as my enemies. I don't want to be their friends. Like, that, that's, again, that's why I said that's probably further than some of you are willing to go in thinking about this. What's the point? Well, these imprecatory psalms, I know we're only spending like part of a subpoint of all the psalms that we're going over on the imprecatory psalms. That's because they're kind of hard ones to preach. But the point is that when we read texts like this, what it should inspire us is we need to avoid and hate sin at all costs. That's basically what it should do to us. So next thing I want you to write down is I want you to hate and avoid sin. I want you to hate it and avoid it. Some of us claim to hate sin, but we don't avoid it. We say we hate it, but we actually kind of drift towards it. Others of us really love it on the inside, but we do our best to avoid it, right? Here's the ideal, that we hate it from the inside and we avoid it on the outside. That, that'd be great if we could do that. That's the ideal. He's so intense about this. The reason he's intense about this is because God's intense about this. Psalm 5 says the same thing. Basically, God says, I hate all this stuff that's going on. And it's not described, right? And a lot of people, because this is so intense, they say, this is why David wrote the psalm. It's all about this right here, because he's upset at people. I don't know if that's totally true. I think part of it is true that he is upset at some people who are doing some evil things. We don't know what it is, but the point is they're taking God's name in vain. They're men of blood, right? So they're taking innocent people and having them harmed, which if there's anything that should make you upset, it's when people, innocent people, maybe people that you love are hurt by evil people. Like if there's anything that can make your blood boil, it should be that right there. And that's what David's saying. So these people are doing really bad things. It's not like they're just mean to David, right? That's not the point. And notice, why is David mad about this? He's not mad because they're mean to David. Look what it says. It's all about God. Oh, that you would slay the wicked God. Men of blood, depart from me. They speak evil against you. They take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you? These people hate God. They're against God. They're doing things against God. It's not about David. That's the point. So with the hating and avoiding sin, we're not just talking about the sin that people sin against you because you'll, you'll hate that anyway. Sinners hate people who sin against them. Okay? That's not what I'm trying to get you to do. What I'm trying to get you to do is start to see sin as against God. Start to see that. Right? David sees sin against God. That's why he's upset about it. He's not mad because he got wronged. He's mad that God got wronged. He's zealous for God's honor. It does fire him up when people say evil things about God. I think some of us would be put to shame if we sat there and thought about all the evil things that people say about God, knowing that God is in the room with you and you don't stand up for God. I think some of us would be put to shame if we really examined our life in that regard. Some of us are too afraid sometimes to speak up for God. Hate and avoid sin. Psalm 5, 1 Corinthians 15, 33 says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. I think what he's getting at is I don't want to be near these people because I don't want to be drawn into their sin. And if that seems pretty prideful or 
harsh or whatever you think you don't like about the, that verse. Um, look at verse 23, okay? Because I think David explains where he's coming from. Look at verse 23 back in your Bible, Psalm 139, verse 23. After saying that he doesn't want to be associated with these evil people and he wants to be complete removed and he wants them to be destroyed. Here's what David says. God, search me again. Check my heart again because I'm, I'm saying this stuff. I mean it, but I don't want to be a hypocrite here and have all this sin in my heart while I'm calling out these other people. So he says, God, search my heart. Check me. Know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Do, do you know that search me, try me? has already been said, you have searched me and known me, verse one. Now verse 23, search me again, right? It's like, I know you already searched me, you know me altogether, but check me again, God. I don't wanna have all this zeal for you and this hatred about these people that are, are, are doing things that are horrible against God. I don't wanna have that if what's going on in my heart is I'm harboring the same sins. So search me, God, know me, try my thoughts and see, verse 24, if there's any grievous way in me because I've just identified all this grievous way in them. God, I don't want to be a hypocrite here. If there's any of that evil in me, if they were doing that stuff because they're proud, God, I don't want any pride in my heart. God, if they're doing those things because they didn't love other people, God, I don't want that to be in my heart. You're like asking God, show me what's wrong. Because I don't think you can do verses 19, 20, 21, 22 until you've done verses 23 and 24. What I mean is I don't think you can have the proper zeal for God that's, that's a righteous zeal if you're not at the same time also doing what David does in verse 23 and 24. That's so instructive, right? Because if, if you're the type that tends towards the like, oh, I can't believe they did that, right? Okay, well then verse 23 and 24 are very important for you, okay? But if you're the type of person that's just so go with the flow that nothing can bother you, you need to listen to David and listen to verses 19, 20, 21, 22 again. And remember that God's honor is at stake in this world when people disobey him. That there's a time and a place for anger. Jesus got angry, but he got angry with the zeal of the Lord that consumed him. Verses 23, 24 basically tell us to pray for a good heart. That's the last thing I want you to write down. Pray for a good heart. Jesus asked us to pray for the same thing in, in the Lord's Prayer. Remember that? So, uh, Matthew chapter 6, verse 13 Jesus said, make sure that when you pray, don't, don't, don't finish praying until you ask God to keep you from temptation and deliver you from the evil one. Pray for a clean heart, good heart. That idea of a clean heart actually comes from Psalm 51. Psalm 51, verse 10. Remember, Roy preached this to us a while back, but it says, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Right? When we sin and when we confess our sin, this is like saying, I, I want to get back on the narrow way. I told you at the beginning that we started playing hide-and-seek with Eden, um, and it's super fun. But naturally what happens is the older these kids get, the less time you, know, you spend with them. You don't do the same type of games. Probably will spend less actual time. Now it's like everything she does, someone has to keep an eye on her, right? Um, not always, but except for when she's sleeping. We got to like know where she is. Like, where, where's the girl? Where's the girl? Is she, you know, this morning, I think it was this morning, I, I let Eden be on the couch on her back and she started wiggling around and she like dropped something on the ground. And I was just like, are you seeing her? Do you have an eye on her? Do you have an eye on her? And I didn't. And I'm like, oh no, no, what's going on? And then she's like turned over and she almost like fell off, right? And I'm like, ooh, ooh okay, girl, okay. And I kind of put her back on the couch. She gets in these weird like, you know, contortion <laughs> positions and she's moving around, trying to wiggle around. She can't crawl yet. So she just kind of moves around like that. But like everyone has to keep an eye on her at all times. Um, our eyes are pretty much always on her, or someone's eye. I mean, right now they're not, but you know somebody's got an eye on her. The older she gets, the less that happens. And you know, sometimes when we grow up, we feel like, in some ways, we wish that you know someone would keep an eye on us. In some ways, I know you don't want your parents to see everything you do and watch everything you do. I just, I mean, sometimes with your relationships with people, you you wish that maybe someone would keep an eye on me a little bit more. I, I wish people remembered me a little bit more. I wish people thought of me a little bit more. I feel like they feel forgotten about or I feel neglected in some way. Um, as kids grow up, you, parents don't keep their eye on them as much. Um, that's just how it goes, right? When we think about God and his care and his concern, there's never a time where his eye is less on you than at other points. There's never a time where he forgets. 
it feels good to be remembered. It cheers us up in some ways. God never forgets about us. The closer we grow to him is just, that spatial analogy is just to mean that we, our heart is more like his heart. We get to know him better. He knows us all together. He doesn't grow in his knowledge of us. We just grow over our knowledge of him. To know God and to be known by God is one of the key things to what it means to be a Christian, right? To be a person who knows God, who knows God better and more. The thing is, in all of that, God does not know you any better. It's just an amazing thing I want you to think about at the end here. God knows you all together. He always keeps an eye on you. And that's a good thing. Where could you run from God? You can't run from God. You're stuck. That's a really good thing, to be in a good relationship with God and to know that you can't outrun him. He'll outrun you. You got four questions. You're only going to go through like two of them tonight, but that's okay. We are, um, we're going to have you go through question number two and four. And leaders, if you can do any others, do whatever you want, okay? All right, let's pray. And then you will go for the shortest small groups all year. Let's pray. God, thank you for searching us and knowing us and trying our thoughts and seeing everything in us. We know that's something that you would do even if we didn't ask you for it, but we're just thankful that you know us all together. Um, pray for the people right now that are scared of that fact, that they would see that they cannot outrun you like Jonah, that you're going to call them back. And just pray that you would humble them tonight and that some of them would start to see that they need, they need to respond to you. That all this stuff we talk about, eternity, life, and death, and talk about you, it's all, it's all real. Pray that you would continue to show that to them. Pray that you continue to grow us to be more like you, that we would be like David, that we would have the heart that you have, that we would hate sin like you do, and that we would continue to maintain that clean heart, and we'd pray for it every day. Please help us with that. We need it. We need protection from temptation. We need protection from sin. So please continue to protect this group. And I pray that they would walk in the truth, knowing what you say in your word and knowing the truth about you, but even more than that, knowing you personally. Pray that for them right now in Jesus' name. Amen.